Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb, a historian of Judaism and a member of the faculty at the Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago. And I'm Modia Silva, a psychotherapist and author in Toronto, Canada. And uh, today, for those of you who are following us on a weekly basis, you know that we were looking forward to a special guest today. Um, every four weeks, we look at a particular meter, a particular character trait, and overlay it onto the weekly Torah portion, onto the Parsha. And our plan is that every fourth week of that of that sequence, that we will have a special guest. And today we're honored, and maybe the focus is not guest, but special, uh, to have Rabbi David Jaffe, who is an author, a rabbi, a spiritual seeker. Um, his book came out uh, a few years ago now, I think back in 2016, called Changing the World from the Inside Out. And we'll learn... Um, Hopefully, over the next little while, from David, we'll learn about uh, the character trait of Haritsut, of um, of decisiveness. Uh, thank you, decisiveness. My brain just shut off for a second. Um, of decisiveness, and it'll be an interesting slant because uh, David runs an organization called Kirva, the Kirva Institute, which is rooted in social justice. And so we'll look, hopefully, at the intersection of ca individual character development with uh, the larger picture of social justice. But before we do that, I'd love to introduce everyone to Rabbi David Jaffe. Mm -hmm. David, thanks so much for, uh, for having me here. Really looking forward to this discussion. Likewise. So, um, Rabbi Jaffe, or David, if I David, may, um, could, first of all, could you... I, I think before we launch into discussion of the Parsha and the Midah, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your work in Kirva. And uh, and I think it's important, not just so that we can get to know you a little better, but also so that we can see how you understand and get an example of how you are using Musar to shape not only your values, but the work that you do in the world. Sure, and I'm happy to. Thanks, David. Uh, so Kirva is uh, we're an organization that brings together uh, Jewish spiritual wisdom, particularly uh, Musar and uh, Hasidic wisdom, with the work of social change. And we're, our name, Kirva, is based on an essay <clears throat> by Rav Shlomo Volbe, where he writes, it's called um, uh, uh, Powers of, or Forces of Amity and, and uh, Estrangement in the World, that's the English translation of it, uh, where he says that the essential state of the world is one of connection and closeness, um, but we don't live that way. And he points to the word for cruelty in Hebrew, which is achzar. And he raises up a, uh, a, a interpretation of that word from the Ibn Ezra, a medieval commentator, that the root is kizar, rachzar, kizar, like a stranger. And so when we become like strangers to each other, that's when cruelty and oppression can enter into our relationships. And Revolbi says that Musar is the discipline that helps us do the work on our Yetzirah that is part of what that estrangement is, estrangement from each other, from God, from ourselves. And I love that teaching. And I really feel like that is the work that 
we are trying to do in the world is to overcome an estrangement we have from each other as human beings, from God, from ourselves, to live in a way and create communities and organizations and societies that honor that deep kirva that we actually really have among each other. So that that's um, at my highest aspiration of what our work is. And so that's why I love the name kirva for what we do. That's great. That's great. I, yeah. I love that because um, David and, well, all of us, the three of us, I guess, have been um, immersed in Musar for many, many years. And sometimes I lose sight of what you just said. And I see Musar as an individual practice where I just want to become a better person. And so I work on my own character strengths. And sometimes I forget that it really is about connection. It is about bringing everyone together. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So in term, turning then to uh, this week's Torah portion, this week's uh, portion is Bishalach, and we have um, some of the most remarkable uh, narrative and imagery um, that we find in all of Torah this week. And we also have some of the most ancient texts, uh, biblical scholars believe, uh, in terms of uh, Shirat Hayam and some of the uh, some of the other images and narratives drawn as uh, the Egyptians are drowned in the sea. Um, I don't, it's so hard to know where to begin, um, but I wanted to um, float this issue or this theme that was interesting to me, which is how, uh, how one knows when to act and the difference between individual decisiveness and collective decisiveness. What I found myself thinking most about, and I'm hoping this is a way in for all three of us, um, was the was the midrash about Nachshon ben Aminadav. So this is a story that you hear all the time when you study um, the Exodus, uh, um, especially early on in one's Jewish education. One will hear um, as if it were in the Torah, but it really only appears, I think, in Mechilta, or first appears in Mechilta. The idea is, who's going to go into the sea first? Who is going to take the step of actually uh, embracing through physical action what God says God's making possible? So the Midrash is that Nachshon ben Aminadav, who is a direct descendant of Judah, um, decides to wade in, and that it is only when the water is up to his nose and he's on the verge of drowning, that God parts the waters. Uh, and this is held up as a model, not only of emunah, of faithfulness, but I think of decisiveness in the face of existential threat. The idea, I think, that's pursued in this, uh, in this midrash, and I would love to know, uh, David, your thoughts about it, is when massive uh, change, when a salvific, if you will, moment is happening, somebody has to take the step, the, a human being has to take the step to manifest that energy in the world. And the character of Nachshon ben Aminadav, for various reasons, seems like a logical embodiment of that. Um, am I, what do you think about that? Is it a lesson for us in terms of decisiveness or is it uh and how does it reflect on the midah of haritzut for you in terms of this portion 
Wow, there's so much there, David. Sorry, I tend to do that. <laughs> I know, it's awesome. I want to just take, can I take a step back for a mm-hmm. second and then come into it? Uh, because I know you've been talking about Haritsut for the last month, uh, but I want to just enter in just my own thoughts, kind of where, just let you know where I'm thinking about it. Um, and of course, based in there's not a lot of verbiage here to, to work with, but just a couple of the key ideas are, um, you know, we have, he, he describes how we act on stimuli and kind of there's, there's just like response reactivity. That's like one way of acting the world. And a, a higher level is we have thought, um, but you can never, so now once you're in thought, you can never fully determine what's going to happen in the future. So you can't know for sure. So you use your best. You know, I was just looking at it again. You use your reason or probability to make a decision. And then he says the challenges are you can either like just go from the gut and you have people who just go from the gut and they jump in like they're just basically being reactive. Or you have people who just deliberate forever and get tons of advice and never move. And you don't want to do either of those. So I was just like this incident is so amazing. We think about it that uh, with Noxone, you're driving Noxone. I want to go back a step to the scene at, uh, 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 you know, where Egypt is coming behind them in the Torah, it's uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 15, and people cry out, and Rashi, and I think the Mechilta tell us that they were relying on the tools of their ancestors. You pray in moments like this, and and Rashi quotes, you know, all the different, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, how they all prayed. Sounds like a pretty high-level thing to do, is you pray. But we see here, no, that's not actually the thing right now. And uh, God says, so why are you crying to me? Go forward. You need to move forward. Mati Sakalai, why are you and uh, why are you crying to me? And Rashi there says, they need to just have a muna. They need to have faith and just have faith at that moment. And I'm just struck by that in terms of the decisiveness that, um, you know, Nakshon standing at the sea, right? If you want to be literal about it, you know, if we take what Revelefa is saying, did he use reasoning? It was probability that if I step into this water, it's probably going to open. <laughs> no, that's probably a pretty <laughs> bad idea. Um, or his reasoning. So it wasn't any of those things. And so, I, you know, I think I want to relate this back to social change work, which is the area I work a lot in. And um, the image of Rosa Parks, that's like in the United States, that's like a kind of the iconic image of one person doing this singular act that then had this massive, you know, change of, you know, of her with the, the, the discrimination in the South and not allowed as a black woman, not allowed to sit in the bus in the front. And she sat in the bus and that sparked the whole thing. We know that it wasn't just that. It was like, yes, that was maybe a Nakshon moment of one person doing something. But we know that she was part of a massive effort of training and she'd been trained as an organizer and was like you know involved in this work for years and years she wasn't an old lady who got tired one day you know she you know there was a lot behind this that went on and so i'm thinking about nakshon in that sense of that you know i don't know if he was just isolated he got up and he went and did it like maybe there was a lot happening you know maybe the people once they said once that god said to moses mati sakalai why are you crying to me move on he really was like, okay, folks, Amuna, we have to have Amuna, let's go on. People are at the sea. Maybe they were like building each other up in their Amuna at that moment. And then, yes, one person stepped forward and, and made it happen. So there was that moment. He needed to be the one who did that. But I guess the point is I want to step away from the idea that it was just he's this isolated individual. 
that when we know that again it comes back to the kirva concept we're all so deeply interconnected with each other and our decisiveness can be a lot based on the community we have around us that's supporting us and what's that community talking about what it's building up and then you have a moment where it's like okay okay maybe Nakshon draw the short straw like i don't know how he ended up being the one who did it but i think it came out of something much bigger than one individual making a decision i i, I think yeah. so too i um <clears throat> it takes me back also to last week's parsha where we got the first collective mitzvah so there was a like there's a shift in the torah away from individuality to collectivism. And it makes sense that that uh, Nachshon wouldn't have just operated alone. I, I also, you just, you just dove a little bit into chapter 14, and I just pulled back two or three sentences to, um, to verse 13. And it says, And Moses said to the people, Al-Tira'u, don't fear, hityatsvu, stand still. And nitzavim is not just to stand, but it's to stand erect. It's to stand with a level of emuna, a, a level of faith. So, I, in in my as a therapist, I translate faith into support. Like I need the support of those around me before I can take a step forward, and I have to have faith that I'm going to get. I'm going to be supported. I'm, I can take the step only if I'm adequately supported. So I think that's what Nachshon did too. I think he knew that there were all those people around him. And he and he came out of Egypt just like everybody else. So he had the same history, the same stories. And I think that empowered him to be able to do that. Can I go down that, David? I have a, just a response. The, the, um, yeah, no, I love that emoji. The, the idea of emunah being about support. You know, we know ne'amanut, another term for, you know, it's a, a working with that word emunah is about reliable, being reliable. What can you rely on? And Moses is called the evan ne'eman. He's called the reliable servant of God in, in, um, in uh, Numbers 12. Uh, uh, that scene there where Moses and uh, I mean Aaron and Miriam are complaining about him. Why is he so different? God says he's Ne'eman Beiti. He's the trusted one, the, st the the reliable one of my home. And Rashbam's comment there is it's it's like he's like a pig put in a wall, strong that you can hang things on it. And so I think in Emunah Ne'emanud is like. I just want to build on that, that support, like you can rely on something. And so maybe Moses was telling them at that point, like, what are you crying? What do you, you know, don't fear, stand by, Hashem's going to do it. Look around, possibly, or maybe that's what God was saying to them. Look at each other. What are you crying to me for? Have emunah. Look at each other. You are going to support each other. And then we get to move forward. I love that. And it, it reminds me of, the verse that I always return to when I'm thinking uh, about Emunah, which is toward the end of the Parsha during the engagement with Amalek in um, uh, its, uh, its chapter 17, verse 12. So uh, Aaron and Hur had to support Moses's hands um, uh, and they had to place a rock under him so that because when he held his hands up, the Israelites prevailed. When he put his hands down, the Amalekites prevailed. But when Aaron and Hur support his hands, it says one is on one side and one is on the other side. Vahayu yadav emunah adbo hashemesh. So this is 
emunah not as faith, but as faithfulness, as steadiness in the engagement with a task, right? And so the emunah that um, that we're talking about, really, and that, David, I think you have just highlighted, is that kind of emunah. It doesn't mean there is not an element of faith in the faithfulness. It simply means that it is essentially action-oriented. And I think this goes back uh, to the point you made that that no decision is is made in a vacuum. No decision is purely personal. I found <clears throat> an article by Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardozo in the Jerusalem Post, where he said, uh, where he's this this issue of decisiveness comes up, and he says, life is the art of drawing sufficient conclusions from insufficient premises. That's mm -hmm. what we're always doing, right? We never have all the information, and every decision creates a whole new decision tree. To, uh, that's that. Uh, yeah, that sounds right on for what we're talking about. And uh, the point also back, you made, made this point that about his hands are emunah. There, his hands are emunah. His hands are being held up by Aaron and Hur. So it's right. not a solo at all. Thanks. Great point. The steadiness yep. comes from the collective holding each other. Exactly. That's a wonderful point. Here's a question that Moji and I have discussed because it comes up in previous Parshiot, and it's bugging me. It's still bugging me. There's lots of commentary on it, and I know you can help us with it. Um, uh, and that is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Um, and the fact that at the end here, God one more time hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh has agency removed from him. And, you know, there's a Talmudic dictum that in the path a person chooses, he will be led. So once you make a certain number of decisions in a certain vein, you in, in essence seem to lose free will a little bit. But how is it, how are we to reconcile ourselves when thinking about the Midah of decisiveness that Pharaoh presents not only, it's not just a net, he's not Haman, he's not, in a sense, he is the embodiment of powerful dark forces, but he is also depicted as human. He has some remorse. He tries uh, to let the Israelites go, but God hardens his heart. He, change, he changes his mind, or his mind is changed for him. How can we th think about Haritzut in a way that helps us with the fact that once we've made certain kinds of decisions, our will, our free will is actually restricted? And why, and the bigger question, which I hope you can help me with, which has been bugging me, why does God do this? Mm -hmm. Well, let me take the, the, the other question first of uh, decisiveness and how it can lead to, right? Because I think we know this about uh, the habituation is such a big, important um, uh, topic in Musar and the idea we want to habituate. We want to habituate, or Dessler talks about the choice point where we want to uh, habituate ourselves to good, to, to doing good things, but there's always then a danger in that. Now you've become habituated. And it becomes rote. And so what's the next choice point? What's the next choice point that's actually alive? But we know, and then he says, by going in the direction that's towards our Yetzirah and towards more numbness, we become more numb. So we, in, in, in Rabbi Leffen's uh, schema of, in Cheshbon and Nefesh, of your, your earlier state is one of rote kind of response to stimuli. I wonder, I hadn't thought this before you asked the question, but I'm wondering if there's a way, once we make a decision, if we're not still kind of aware of it, 
that could become rote and it becomes a rote mm-hmm. behavior. And then it we're backed in like a circle away to the stimuli, to responding to stimuli just based on our former decisions. So we're not actually thinking anymore. There's not thinking happening. There's this like pre-thought just response to stimuli. Then there's thought. And you don't want to be too deliberative. You don't want to be too quick, but you thought and you choose. But then maybe there's another kind of pre-thought thing that happens that we just get stuck that. in something. Yeah. Um, I, that's the first time I've thought of that. You know, it probably takes needs more analysis, but that's the thought there. Yeah. So now to come to Paro. Um, so Paro, you know, one way of thinking about it is that he was in the pre-thought realm and he was responding to stimuli uh, each time and that he, he's in a world. I just saw this in a Hasidic text last week in the Morinayim, the, the Chernobyl Rebbe writes about how that was completely a world of um, magic and of, of, you know, sorcery and that kind of thing. In mm-hmm. a way, like you could think about in our world today of a world of science and technology, like everything is technology and how does it work and, and, and a material kind of understanding of things. That was Egypt. That was Mitzrayim. It was like very material. And they had their formulas they could use to manipulate nature and that kind of stuff. It was completely that. So we let that think of that in terms of a pre-thought type of, uh, of way of being. It was like, it was just, it was very mechanical. And this is the way things function. Um, and it was so deep that way that God needed to insert God's self of the sense of God, yud heh vav the God of the God of miracles, the God beyond nature, to insert God's self in it and say, like, no, 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 no. You think that's all there is, but there's something like way bigger than this. Still come to the problem of why does the text keep telling us that God hardens his heart and it doesn't seem like Pharaoh is doing it just on his own. And you know, don't we think I don't have a great answer, so I'm sorry to disappoint you on that. All this is great so far, though. <laughs> but my sense there is is that um, yeah. he wasn't really out of his sense of like pre-thought level and of that all there is is the material world. He was moving a little bit out, but perhaps God saw that this guy's not out of it enough. And, you know, he needs to really get, he needs to really go through these more things. So I'm going to kind of tip the scales a little bit here to keep him in habituation um, so he can really experience it fully. And there's this one Midrashic strain that I, I don't know exactly where it is. You've probably heard it, uh, but I, 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 can't, I can't place exactly where it is. But it's where Paro, in his descent under the sea, did Shuva. And he ended up becoming the king of Nineveh in the time of Yonah. And I love that Midrash That's because amazing. the whole corpus of our rabbinic literature and everything is that, no, like that was it. He like lost his free will and he died, boom, boom, and that was it. But there's this one strain that says like, no, actually it worked. And he did Shuva and he finally understood God and he became a model for the generations of what Shuva looks like. Because he didn't just do tshuva in his words, but they, you know, they did all their deeds, as it says in the Sefer Yana. Um, so that would be, I guess, my tentative answer here is that God had a sense that he wasn't quite there yet to really get the message, and needed to go through a bunch more steps. I but love that. I, yeah. made it. I just love that, and I just want to say um, uh, before Moja jumps in that. I think that's so powerful, and I think the connection that you draw between sort of the me- mechanistic um, and m- magical certainty of Egypt and drawing a connection to our contemporary culture is really powerful, and I, I really love that. Thank you. So I, yeah, I would like to jump in. 
because I like your question as well, and I have grappled with it for the last few weeks, David, about um, about free will, whether Pharaoh's free will and why would God do that? And um, I did hear last week from uh, a rabbi who was saying that it was really, it wasn't about Pharaoh, it was really about everybody else. It was a, it was a teaching for the Egyptians and for the Israelites to know that God was more powerful than Pharaoh and that God could control. So I think about that, and it seems a bit two-dimensional, simplistic for me. But what I look at is back in, I'm still in chapter 14, uh, verse 8, it says, And God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, for the children of Israel went out with a high hand. And Rashi says, Bayad Ramah, with a high hand, means with a might that was eminent and manifest. So it could be that when we see either decisiveness or indecisiveness from someone, that we get to learn from that. And the Israelites took the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and were able to pass that out and say, okay, there's an aspect of Pharaoh that's really bad because he just kind of sticks with his, you know, his, his single path. But there's an element of it that's really good in decision-making, which is a firmness, like a power and uh, the eminent and manifest might. And so maybe what I can learn as an Israelite is collect all my data, like Rabbi Leffen says, right? Think about it, make a decision, and then be firm about it, like move forward like Nachshon did. So I haven't lost my free will, but I'm actually, I'm doing what um, what Rabbi David said, the other David, um, which is trying really hard not to make something rote. So even though it seems like I've made a decision and I have a, f a firmness and a strength about that decision, I'm still going to step back periodically and say, and question it and say, should I hold that decision a little more loosely? I'm interested in, in reflecting on that in terms of how the Israelites as a whole um, are still stuck in habituation. Can you Moja, can you reflect a little bit on that? Because we see that despite and close on the heels of their miraculous salvation, they are still habituated to Egypt. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I do, but um, I'm habituated to a lot of things that I want to change. And I, yeah. in, my, in my personal life, I see how difficult it is to make change. And then I look to other resources. I mean, this isn't really an answer to your question, but but I look to resources like Atomic Habits, like the book Atomic Habits, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or How to Form a Habit by Dugill or whoever it was. I forget his name. Um, and I think I, I I think that is part of the human condition. Like, yes, I'm a soul, but I'm a soul sitting inside a body that's a physical machine, and that physical machine with its with its brain patterns is habituated towards um, towards comfort, towards regularity, to lack of change, because that removes any sense of fear or, you know, nervous system activation. So yeah. I, I, I want regulation. I want, I, I want to have to s also brain power. Like I, I don't think about brushing my teeth. I just brush my teeth because if I had to think about every single stroke, every single time, it would burn so much brain power. Right. So the right. machine, my machine is designed to fall into habit. And I'm, I guess I'm asking, and this is a question for both of you. I'm asking a little bit more about 
how we are affected by the habituation of our community, of our culture, of our society. Just a few verses later from the one you just read, in verse uh, 11, the Israelites say, was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us out to die? And this pattern repeats itself. They keep saying, why are we taking these hopeless steps toward freedom? We miss our our meat. We miss the leeks and onions. We miss the goodness of the admittedly narrow space that we were confined to. So my, my question is, uh, Moja, but also for you, David, um, how do we work with this midah um, in the face of so much challenge? Because really what Judaism urges us to do in in the work of caring for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger is to go against the grain. This is going against the grain. So how do we, what do we learn from this about how to maintain fortitude to do that work when it is pushed against, frowned upon, undermined? Uh, yeah, no, I can tell you. The, the, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's such a huge thing. And it's, I think the, the, the mead and the watermelon or the zucchinis, all that, whatever the things they say, the food they wanted, I think we know what really it was about was not having to have responsibility of freedom. And it was certainly scary. Was there food? Is there water? But it was, we've now moved into freedom. And that feels like the main theme of this Parsha and a Parsha that's going to come up. And we're seeing in the, in the complaining that happens multiple times in this week's Parsha that, you know, in Haritsut, there's a whole, there's a way of um, when you make a decision, um, you want to be, I think as Moji was saying, you want to be um, like not get wrote about it and you want to be able to have be, hold it lightly. I don't remember the exact term you used, but you also don't want to go back on it all the time over and over and over again. You know, when I, uh, it was about a year ago in my leadership program, we, we studied this media and one of the people in the program was the CEO of an organization. She said that they instituted a policy on their board that once the board made a decision on something, they weren't going to keep opening it up again and again and again, because that was happening. They were making policy decisions. And then someone two board meetings later was like, I don't really like that decision we made. And it just, it was terrible. And they couldn't move forward with things. And I see those people as kind of like Israelites here. Like, didn't we tell you Moses that we didn't rot on it? Like, uh -huh. told you so, told you so, told you uh -huh. so. And what is that? That is a, um, it's a lot of things, but regarding decisiveness, it's a, um, it's not being fully in in the decision. Um, and, and I think that happens a lot. I've seen it a lot. I've done it personally. I remember when I was much younger and I was leading, co-leading a program and I wanted to do one program, but the person couldn't show up. My co-leader wanted to do something else. We did the other thing and then it didn't go well. And I said, oh, I knew we shouldn't have done that. You know, and I was in this told you so mode, which is the most unleaderly type of way of being. And so I want to come back to go back to your question. So it's, it's, there's a thing that goes on where people aren't fully taking responsibility for their decisions going forward. And so I think Akhrayut is another Mida mm -hmm. that we can bring in responsibility, mm -hmm. um, coming to your, your, your question about going against the grain and the idea of like caring for the widow, the orphan and the, and the stranger, which goes against the grain of society. Um, how do we do that when we're habituated to comfort and to power and all kinds of other things? Um, it's akhrayut, it's responsibility. And it's taking responsibility for moral values that we have and that 
we're individually responsible, but then our collective is responsible. And so I think those are, uh, that's a media and a tool that can help us. I, I love I like that. You. And go ahead, Mojin. No, no, go, go for it. Um, David, I love the idea of other me dote that play into decisiveness. Um, and before we started recording, you mentioned the Mida of flexibility. Could you say more about that? Um, sure. Uh, let me, I'm just pulling up. There's a, again, it comes back to this idea of how, how we hold a decision. And so on the one hand, we don't want to always be, I told you so, and not be like responsible for the decisions we made. On the other, we don't want to be then also really super rigid on that decision. We can never change. And so I think the Mida of, it's called Gemishut in Hebrew, flexibility is an important balance to Haritsut. That once you make the decision to really be flexible enough to take in new data and to say, is this working or is this not working? And what do we need to do? And let me just share with your audience, I'll share with you, the um, uh, uh, Gemara in, uh, uh, in Ta'anit, in the, in the Babylonian Talmud Ta'anit, page 20, A and B. Uh, where the rabbis say they're explaining the difference between a reed and like a bulrush, a reed and a cedar tree. They say just as this reed stands in a place of water and its shoots replenish themselves when cut and its roots are numerous for a plant of its size. And even if all the winds in the world come and blow against it, they cannot move it from its place. Rather, it sways with them until the winds subside and the reed still stands in its place. And they go on, they say, the sages further taught in praise of a reed, a person should always be soft like a reed, rach is the word they use, and he should not be stiff, kashe, like a cedar. And so if you get the picture there, the cedar is very strong. It doesn't have deep roots. If a very strong wind comes, it could blow it over. Whereas the, whereas the, the reed, because it can bend all the way to the ground, and then it pops back up again. That's something the rabbis really admired. Mm -hmm. And they finished this piece by saying, and therefore, the reed merited that a quill is taken from it to write with it a Torah scroll, tefillin, and, uh, and a mezuzah. Wow. So... Isn't it beautiful? It's a beautiful yeah. image. And that becomes the thing that we write our eternal books with and that have Kedusha, that have holiness, comes from this flexibility. I just um, love that. And it's yeah. and it also suggests that you know the reed exists in community, in a stand of reeds. Yeah. Well also also the reed is rooted. Like it's it's not it's not like um it's not like a li a lily on the water that has whose roots just kind of float in the water. The reed is actually rooted into the ground so you can have that flexibility but you also still have to stay grounded right um i heard that too i i could be wrong david but that ta'anit reference like the gemara that you just read from i had heard that that came out of barad that when hail came when the plague of hail came we learned from that that the reeds would bend over when they got hit by the hail and bounce back i don't know i i no, that was a lot, many years ago I heard that. So where do we go? I actually, I'm still curious about your work. And I know we might be leaving the Pasha for a bit here, but we've been talking about social responsibility, talking about flexibility, and um, knowing the type of work that you do, the work you've done with the homeless in San Francisco, the work, uh, all around the US. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
the overlay of Musar for you and your work? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, so Musar, uh, Musar, the the the, the um, Chazal or our rabbis gave us uh, tools for living in community, and they understood how difficult it is for human beings to actually get along and not just kill each other. You know, and so I feel like a lot of what Torah is is, and 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 especially interpersonal aspects of Torah. Uh, are about how do we actually live in community and live in relationship with each other, and um, and and then and live in relationship with God as well. Uh, but I feel like there's what what is true. One of my teachers, Rabbi Aryan Ben David, he says what's true on the on the vertical plane is also true on the horizontal plane. And so what's true with God is also true in our relationships. And uh, and so Musar is the discipline that helps us develop that excellence in the way we live in relationship with God and with each other. Social change work, no matter what it is, it's done in community. It's not done as an individual. You're thinking communal. You're thinking about the whole. And so when I was working in homelessness in San Francisco, you know, we we're thinking about the whole. We we're thinking about this incredibly wealthy city that has people who, you know, for all kinds of issues or reasons, are not able to afford a home, live in a home, or out on the street, lots of drug addiction, lots of things are going on, or people just, you know, not being able to make enough money to be able to afford that. And you see that is not a, um, that individual's problem. I mean, yes, we are individuals, and we have a hero, we have free choice, and we need to make choices of things, but it's about communal thinking, and about what's, what are all of our responsibilities to each other. And what uh, um, the changes we made during the time I was there came about through collective effort, through community organizing, through joining together with people who were not directly impacted by homelessness, with people who were directly impacted by homelessness, working with the Department of Social Services to think together about what are the most dignified ways that we could treat people um, and not. So one of the first um, you know things I was involved with in this whole area of work of social change was a fraud policy that had social workers able to go into women's homes and look in their drawers to see if there was male underwear there. And if there was, they would lose their benefits. And people felt that was very degrading to them to have people just burst into their homes and look through their underwear drawers. And so we organized together to work together with the department to come up with a new policy that would, you know, take into account that fraud happens and don't want that to happen, but was also dignified and had kavod for the people there. So Musar, I understand and why I bring these things together is because Musar gives us the tools and the wisdom for how to actually do collective action together and to be in deep relationship with each other. And then to try to actually make these values like kavod something real in the social policies that impact so many people's lives. So I think Musar and the work I do go so well together. I mean, and we know Rabbi Israel, uh, you know, there's a lot of great stories about him and how he really worked for the betterment of people who are really suffering in the, in the society. So I, I think they're a natural, you know, pair. I think that's um, fascinating. And I've reflected it. What you've just said caused me to reflect on the work that I was doing when I began to study Musar, which was as a developer of affordable housing um, with my brothers-in-law, I started a nonprofit full circle communities that developed affordable housing and used 75% of its cash flow to provide supportive services to the residents. 
So it was completely, and still is going completely philanthropically. And and Moja's work as a as a somatic therapist, and and Moja, you and I talked about this, I think, just last week. A lot there's so much that is Musar about the work that you do. And I think you mentioned last week that one of the commonalities that you see amongst many of your clients is a, a, a sort of rampant indecisiveness. Am I, am I depicting that accurately? Like decisiveness is a huge problem for many of the people you treat. No, it, it's true. Um, but I think decisiveness is a problem for all of us. I was actually thinking, as as David was just speaking about San Francisco, that um, I've I had worked for quite a few years with the Toronto Jewish organization called Via Hafta, which is the Jewish response to homelessness in Toronto, and um, so they're the guys who drive vans around the city every day, uh, delivering food and clothing and sleeping bags and and so on to those who experience homelessness. And um, I used to work. Um, I used to work with people who'd experienced homelessness and refugees and refugee claimants to help them figure out where they want to go next on their path to to rejuvenation. Um, and decisiveness played a huge part in that process, that people would be frozen. There was like, well, I just figured out how to get off the street. I just got into a rooming house or I just I live in a shelter or, you know, I don't know what to do next other than figure out where my next meal is coming from. And, and then the job was to use Musa, to use all the positive character traits of, um, of you say, like res respectability, that, that whole thing of, wow, going into someone's room and checking their underwear drawer is shocking. So it's like how, I, I remember I had people around the table and I'd say, what, what is your goal? And one guy who had just arrived from Africa said, my goal is to make a million dollars within three years. I was like, great, that's what we'll work on. And the next guy at the table said, I've been homeless for the last 10 years. I've just got into a rooming house. My goal is to get the bed bugs out of my bed. I was like, you guys have the same goal. It, it doesn't really matter what the content is. It's like, let's work on this together with, with dignity, as you said, David. And, and I think that is the power of Musar is recognizing the, the the soul within everybody and, and that we're all one collective. Yeah, I think that is a very hard, in this day and age, uh, that is a very hard and necessary um, fact to keep in mind. Uh, David and Moja, one other question that surfaced for me uh, in this parsha is that when the Israelites grumble against Moses, he says, you're not grumbling against me, you're grumbling against God. But when uh, but when they stand at the edge of the sea, um, Moses says, um, you will see um, what the Lord will do for you. And God says, why are you turning to me? Go forward. You know, hold up your hands. Uh, I'm not quoting it exactly because I don't have the verse right in front of me, but there's an element here of that comes back to the midav achrayut responsibility um, that we were talking about. That uh, there seems to Moses is still learning how to be fully responsible while under the aegis of God's care. Uh, 
And, and as we, and as I'm sure we, all three of us know, achrayut, the root of that word is acher, is, is consciousness of the other. But the flip side of that, or the downside of that can be deflecting responsibility onto the other and refusing or not knowing when to take full responsibility for what is occurring. So um, I, I want to be sensitive uh, uh, to your time, and this is my last question, but my question is, uh, how do we wrap together um, the individual and communal lessons of of decisiveness, as we've just been saying, it is so hard to do in our current place and time to really maintain the sense of being amongst a stand of reeds and not cedars. What are the practical steps, David, that you take in your work to bind the community together in this work, and what lessons can we take from that? Oh, that's such a great question. Hey, thanks, David. Yeah, I think it's like a lot of things we've been talking about, that there's um, a sense of, uh, first of all, a sense that we're responsible to each other. And, uh, you know, Moses, the, 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 the fixing or tikkun of the, the, what you just described was the, the sin at the golden calf, where um, the author of Sabatka says that that was a, actually an opening for tshuva in the future, that if those people could do tshuva, then anyone could. So there was that, but also for Moses, because that's the scene where Moses says to God, like, erase me from your book like i am with them like they you need you are connected to them god they are your people and moses fully takes responsibility for the people there. it's a beautiful beautiful scene and so i think in 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 my work uh that's really trying to create uh you know collective social like betterment for for really for all of us um there's making decisions together it's yes we are individuals and we need to make our individual decisions but it's really trying to think collectively together. How do we, what do we care about listening to each other? And then what can we decide more than just one individual community or another, or whether it's like our ethnic groups, our religious groups, or just where we live, suburb, city, whatever. How do we kind of get the most diverse kind of group of people together thinking about and then deciding things together? That's, mm -hmm. that's where kind of the growing edge is, I think, uh, for me and in, in this work. I love that. Thank you. I like it. Can I, but I actually, I want to, I want to ask one extra piece then, David, for what you just said, because sometimes as I work on a meter or work on my traits, feels like a grind. And when I think to habit forming, and I think about the MIT study of um, the three-step approach to creating a habit, the third, the third step is celebrating success that when you've actually done it, you orient to a celebration. And then in this week's Pasha, the Israelites cross the sea, and then the first thing they do is, like, have a party, right? Sing, and then Miriam takes her timbrel out, and everyone's happy. And it, I, I, so one is I wonder what you think about the placement of celebration in decision-making and success as a community, and then also the sensitivity to, if I'm celebrating, there's someone else on the other side who isn't celebrating because they feel like they just lost something. Right, right. 
Yeah, there's in the community organizing cycle, uh, celebration is part of the cycle. It's you go through, you figure out what you want to do, you make the decision, you do the thing, and then you and then you evaluate and you celebrate. Even if you didn't succeed, you still celebrate uh, of what happened there. Um, so I think on a collective level, that is something that we do as well um, as part of it. Um, and I think uh, I think it's important individually to do that for ourselves in our cheshbon nefesh that we're acknowledging, you know, that we made these decisions, we did these things. Um, and I think, you know, we're, um, we try to be mentioned. And so I think the kind of the, the uh, flouting something in someone's face, if it was a binary situation, say an election, you know, where there is a winner and there's a loser, you know, if you're going to be a mensch, you're going to practice Musar, you're gracious in your, in your victory, uh, just like you're gracious in your loss. Those are both parts of being a being a mensch. So those are those are you know some of the ways I think about it. Okay, wonderful. Just like Nikki Haley just just uh, commended Trump on w- winning New Hampshire last night. Yeah, yeah. that helps things work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think we're coming towards the end, David. This has been fantastic. Um, certainly, it's given me more to think about and. And also, I haven't really shared this, but doing these podcasts week after week, it also gives me thought for what I can share at my Shabbat table with my family and the guests that we have. And so it has been a gift that you've given us today. And I thank you for that. Um, And I think we're drawing to a close. David. Yeah, I uh, have learned so much from you. I'm astonished at uh, how much time has already gone by. It's shocking to me. Uh, and that's testament to to the wisdom that you shared, not just on the midah of decisiveness, but uh, on Musar in general and how to make it work in the world. So I really want to thank you for joining us and say that I hope the three of us get uh, the chance to talk again uh, together in the not too distant future. So Moja, um, this is the end of our four um, sessions on decisiveness, right? It is. It is. So I I don't remember because I don't have my Leffen book what the next me dies. I just saw you looking frantically around. I guess you don't I remember don't. either. David, can we quiz you? What is the it's next me die? It's a nikiyut or cleanliness. Cleanliness. Oh, oh my God. That's amazing. Okay. Uh that's a major problem of mine. Not not in the uh not in the hygiene department, but just in the mental uh cleanliness department. There will be a lot. Um, to talk about in the coming weeks. So uh, Rabbi David Jaffe, thank you so much for joining us today in our discussion. Um, It's been lively, stimulating, and very educational. Uh, And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. We hope you'll listen faithfully and tell your friends about this podcast as we move uh, parsha by parsha through what we hope will be the entire Torah in and looking at it through a Musar lens. I'm David Gottlieb. And I'm Modia Silva, and we look forward to seeing you next week.